0: This message was presented at the GYC 2014 Conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, so uh, we've been dealing with the Book of Colossians uh, yesterday and now this morning, and uh, we looked at the uh, the church in, in an overview and saw the characteristics uh, that are very familiar to us. Actually, uh, in the first chapter of the book of Colossians, in fact, uh, the spirit of prophecy tells us that the first and second chapters of the book of Colossians are an expression of what every one of our churches around the world should be, and we saw those characteristics in the first chapter, the very first part of the of the book. Uh, the all of them, and I won't. I don't have time to enumerate them right now. But uh, you know, there was you know, it was a world church. It was a discipling church. It was a gospel church. All of those things uh, fit with what this movement is and uh, are the ideals towards which it should be uh, pursuing. And then uh, we looked at the focus of the church, Christ, His person and work. We looked at the purpose of the church. Why does the church exist? And we find our own purposes uh, right there in the book of Colossians, you know, taking the gospel to the world. We found the great controversy theme there and and how Paul shares the gospel in light of that great controversy theme. Yesterday also we spoke uh, of, and Paul speaks of, the dangers that face the Colossian church, which are the same dangers that uh, face us today. In fact, I want to just let you know that I'm intending to do a little more uh, expansion on some of those things that I presented yesterday afternoon, uh, tomorrow afternoon, and so I will be uh, shifting the focus of our last presentation to do some a, a little more simplified presentation of some of those dangers because I felt like as I was looking out on the scene there, some people were n- just not quite understanding what you know some of the issues, and I, so I want to expand on that a bit more tomorrow afternoon. So if you know anyone else that you think would benefit from that, uh, we'll be dealing with uh, Colossians 2.8 and looking at that in light of what the Spirit of Prophecy says and doing some more simplified uh, presentation on that, uh, maybe a little more accessible to everyone. But that brings us to today. Total experience. What was the Christian experience supposed to be like, according to what Paul says in Colossians. So I want to start out uh, by looking at the screen here, and we have a a soldier holding up a pair of trousers. I would like you to take a guess, whose trousers do you think those are? Any guesses? Huh? They're not his. They're not his trousers. I wonder how they got like that. Well, let me give you some hints. I'll give you the date. July 20, 1944. Okay, so that's when those trousers got the way they are. It happened at a place called Wolfschanze, uh, which is near uh, Kętrzyn today in Poland. Okay, anybody, uh, anybody getting warm? You think you know what might have happened there? Okay, who is this, uh, this guy is not uh, the one that I'm going to be mentioning here, but this, uh, these trousers got that way because of a man named Klaus von Stauffenberg. Okay, are you, are, you, are you coming up with anything? Anybody have any ideas? Whose trousers are those? Still not sure? Okay, what if I say this, Operation Valkyrie. Still not sure? Whose, whose pants are those? Okay. A, 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 failed, a, a... Exactly. It was a failed attempt to remove Adolf Hitler from power in Germany. And uh, in fact, the people that participated in Operation Valkyrie were dishonored initially. But later, now, even in modern times, they are honored as people who were fighting the good fight of uh, resisting an evil power. What happened was, in Hitler's uh, secret headquarters in Wolfschanze, which is a uh, German means wolf's lair, there in East Prussia, some of his top uh, military people conspired together to take him out. And uh, von Stauffenberg uh, had a bomb in a briefcase, and he placed it near Hitler uh, at the table where they were having a meeting, a uh, a strategic briefing. However, when von Stauffenberg left the room, as planned, uh, on the pretense of taking a phone call, one of the officers actually moved the briefcase because it was in the way of his feet, so he moved the briefcase to the other side of the table leg. There was they had these uh, this big table with a solid uh, pier for the table to sit on. It was you know big solid wood, and so that shielded Hitler from the blast, so that he survived with minor injuries. However the guy sitting on the other side of the table leg died. Interesting how a group of high-ranking military officers, part of the Third Reich would say, you know what, we need to resist what's going on here. This is wrong. You know, we're getting ourselves into trouble. The world is gonna come down on us and we need to do something. They were part of a resistance movement actually, that involved even people as high up and popular as Erwin Rommel. Have you ever heard of Erwin Rommel, the desert fox? He was part of this uh, resistance plot. Resistance movements capture the imagination. I think all of us have this admiration for people who resist evil powers and try to do something to take them out of the way. You and I have the opportunity to be part of a resistance movement, and holiness the holiness that God calls us to is resistance against an evil power. Hebrews chapter 12 verse four says, "In your struggle against sin, you have not yet done what resisted to the point of shedding your blood so is is holiness and Warring against sin, is that part of a resistance movement? Yes, it is. Just as much as von Stauffenberg was resisting what he felt was an evil power, and of course we would agree, we ourselves are part of the resistance against the ultimate evil power, which is the devil and his host. James 4:7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. What's the next word, everyone? Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. So are we instructed here to be part of a resistance movement? Yes, not one that takes up uh, plastic explosives and tries to blow people up. But one that resists sin. And it's a, it's a spiritual resistance that we're asked to join. So, guten Morgen. <laughs> we have some friends joining us and we're glad you're here. So uh, to begin, then, we're looking at, uh, well, I, I want to back up, because this, this illustration will be very relevant for you. Um, remind me of your name again? Benjamin. Benjamin. Uh, I want to know if you, do you, do you know whose uh, pants those are? You should. Oh, sorry. That happened on July 20, 1944. At a place, Wolfschanze. Do you know the history? Von Stauffenberg? The, the plot to kill Hitler. And those are Hitler's pants after the explosion that he unfortunately survived. Okay. But we talked about holiness as resistance. We're part of a resistance movement, gentlemen. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. This is how you live the life of a resistance fighter in the New Testament. Paul says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ Sitteth on the right hand of God. So this is vertical, the vertical dimension of holiness. There's a vertical dimension and there's a horizontal dimension, right? The vertical dimension has to do with our relationship to God. The horizontal dimension is how we deal with other people. So he also says in verse two, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So notice that we're not only to seek the things which are above. That would be uh, admonition enough. But he says, going beyond that, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. There's a difference between merely seeking something and setting your affection on something. If I'm hungry enough, I can even seek lentils, (laughs) right? I'm not a big fan of lentils. My wife keeps telling me how wonderful they are for me, and that's true. They are great, but it's not something that I would set my affection on. But if you were to tell me that I could have kidney beans, rice, and kale, I would set my affection on that. But, you know, so setting your affection on things above means more than simply saying, well, I guess I'll take a passing interest in what's happening in heaven. No, friends. It means to have our minds and hearts drawn out to where Jesus is and what he's doing right now. And we'll see more about that in a moment. Our life is not what we experience here, even though this is the precursor to the eternal life that God will give us. But our true life, our true existence is not in this present world. This is temporary. Have you ever lived in a tent? How many of you have ever camped? Okay, gone camping. Aren't you glad when you get to go back to the real place that you live and, you know, you get out of the tent I mean, tenting's great for a time, but after a while, it gets old. This existence we have here is not our true existence. It's only temporary. And the essence of Christianity, as you see here, is identification with Christ, because Christ identified with us. Therefore, he's saying, Paul is saying, the essence of Christian experience is to identify with him. So we are to reckon ourselves as how? What does it say? For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So we're to reckon ourselves as being dead and that our life is with Christ, that our identity is wrapped up in his. Our new position in him must be that which drives every thought. And notice that we're to do that until Christ appears in glory. There is to be no cessation, no um, relaxation, kicking back, you know, letting the hair down until Jesus comes again. Because he says in verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. When is that going to be? When he comes the second time, right? Right. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So we're to reckon ourselves as dead until Jesus appears in the clouds for the second time. Now, I want to show you an important tie-in here with the first part of Colossians chapter 3. Psalm 110, you see it on the screen here. The key thought is... In the first verse of Colossians, where we saw uh, that we were to keep our eyes fixed on uh, Jesus, who has sat down at the right hand of God, right? There's only one place in the New Test or the Old Testament, I should say, that speaks about someone sitting down at the right hand of God, and that's Psalm 110. So let's see what the what when you when you see one of the New Testament writers referring directly to something in the Old Testament like that, where it's an obvious allusion, you should consider the entire context of where that statement comes from. So, right? If it's, a, if it's an obvious quotation, then they're invoking the context, the New Testament writer is, invoking the context of that, where that phrase occurs in the Old Testament. You know, one of the one of the most... Easy examples of how this works is found in which other New Testament book? Which New Testament book is so full, saturated with Old Testament references that it's hard to go even one verse without finding it? Revelation, absolutely, Chuck. Revelation is loaded with this stuff. You know, when you hear, uh, in for example, in the book of Revelation, in the church of Thyatira, you see a reference to a woman. Her name is Jezebel. So when, when, it, when, the, when, when the New Testament talks about people like Jezebel and Balaam, you've got to go back and look at those stories and say, all right, why did he bring up Jezebel here? Why did he talk about Balaam here? What, what were those, how were those people, uh, how were their stories relevant to the New Testament uh, audience and for us today? So uh, same thing applies here in Colossians. When we see Paul talking about sitting down at the right hand of God, which is an obvious allusion to Psalm 110, we need to go back and read Psalm 110, right? So that we understand what was going on there, why Paul used that phrase. So, having said all that, let's look at Psalm 110 for a moment. It's short so we can read the entire thing. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So there's the parallel. You see that? The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of thine enemies. So you have a kingdom within a kingdom being uh, described there. Thy people shall be willing, this is verse three now, in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. When God's people see that his the day of his power has come, how will they respond, according to this verse? They will be willing. Uh, Some other translations say they will be volunteers. They are going to be, they're going to come forward and say, we will cooperate with you, Lord. Again, we, we mentioned this uh, before, but in many uh, places in the Bible, you see this idea of God portraying himself as a coming conqueror, and he's asking us, will we join the resistance and resist the devil, who is the unjust oppressor of this world? And so here you see God's people being willing in the day of his power to be volunteers. And how do they serve? What does their service look like according to the uh, middle part of verse 3 there? They will be willing in the day of thy power in the, beauties or in the beauty of holiness. How is it that we cooperate with God's plan? How is it that we join the resistance? It's through holiness, holy living, resisting the devil, fighting against sin, not out there primarily, but in here. And then verse 4, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a heavy duty verse. Who's that talking about? Who is the priest that is after the order of Melchizedek? Christ. So you, and, and who was Melchizedek? That mysterious figure of the Old Testament. He was a priest, right? What else was he? He was a king, too. So you have here a priest king who is coming into power. And his people are going to be volunteers. They will serve him and join the resistance in the beauty of holiness. Verse 5, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. So there's this uh, forecast of wrath coming. This is the final conquest where the resistance to not the resistance that is cooperating with him, but the evil forces will be put down, will be defeated. And verse 6, He will judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many, over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. In other words, he will be victorious he will be refreshed after his victory. So I want to just uh, notice a few tie-ins then with uh, Colossians chapter 3. One of them is rulership, and that's implied in um, in this parallel here. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, if ye then be risen up, wisdom with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. That's a position of power, a position of rulership. Psalm one hundred and ten: The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at thy right hand, my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So the sitting at the right hand involves rulership, power. So that's one of the parallels. We're to look to to up to where Christ is in heaven. He is the ruler. He's in the position of power. He's the one we should look to for uh, how to live, not be dictated to by our culture or even by our own nature. And then we have the idea of priesthood. Get all the verses up there. When we look at uh, this idea of sitting at God's right hand in Psalm 110, Hebrews talks about this as well. On the left here, you have the two verses from Hebrews. Talks about Jesus, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, then what did he do, friends? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There's another reference to Psalm 110. And then in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, notice the connection. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. In other words, here's the point of the whole letter so far. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So the whole book of Hebrews is talking about Christ as our high priest who is also the ruler. Paul picks up that theme in Colossians 2 and says that Christ is the one who is sat down at the right hand of God and we are to keep our eyes fixed on where he is and what he's doing. You also see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, a reference to wrath, which, remember, we saw in uh, Psalm 110, verse 5, Paul says that for the the things that he's going to describe in a moment here, uh, the, the sins that we are to war against, for those things' sake, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience, which is the same thing you see in Psalm 110, verse 5. Also, you see the beauty of holiness portrayed eloquently in Colossians chapter 3, as well as in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 refers to the people being willing in the day of his power, in the beauty of holiness. And Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and onwards, is what shows us what the beauty of holiness looks like. So you have those four connections there. So, beginning in verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, he says, Mortify, therefore, your members. What does the word mortify mean, by the way? Put to death. Put to death. Does this sound like a resistance movement? Right? That's what it is. Resist. Put to death. Fight against this. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For for which things sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now, here's my question, everyone. Do we still have issues with those things today? Or is this list now irrelevant? Nobody does these kinds of things anymore? Yeah, worse things than that, right? Or, or uh, greater degrees of those things. So Paul's clear that about one thing: when you have, um, when you're living as part of the resistance, you cannot live as the rest of the people in the world live. That's very clear. He says, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. So there's a clear separation involved here. And he even mentions that this is how they used to behave. Because in verse 7 he says, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. So there's a clear distinction made here from between what they used to be and what they are to be now. I wonder if we're making that distinction clear enough in our discipleship in this church today. Chuck, you do evangelism, and I know, what, I know you try to make this distinction very clear. This is how you used to live. This is how you're to live now. That's what we need. We need people to stand up and say, look, I know this is how you used to live, but this is not appropriate anymore. There's a, there's a new way of life that must be uh, engaged in. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Putting to death is a radical thing. But that's exactly what the New Testament is giving us. A radical thing. Radical holiness. And he says in verse 8, But now you also put off all these... And here's another list. Anger, now it's getting even more close to home, isn't it? Right? I mean, there's people that can say, okay, I'm not going to commit fornication anymore. I'm done with that. But when we start talking about anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, I mean, there's more, filthy communication isn't just saying bad words, is it? Is it involved more than that? What about when you gossip about somebody? Repeat that rumor that you heard that you know is damaging to someone. Is that filthy communication? Absolutely it is. He says, lie not to one another. Oh, boy. Truthfulness. When somebody comes to you and asks you, why did you say this or that? And you say, oh, no reason, when you know there's a very good reason. Right? Are you upset at me? Oh, no, I'm fine. Arrgh. Right? Am I, am I talking to anyone this morning? He says, lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. I mean, that is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, putting off the old man with his deeds. Now, I want you to notice how practical this is. Uh, This is definitely connected right in with the Ten Commandments. So we saw fornication referenced in uh, verse 5. That's dealing with the Seventh Commandment. We saw covetousness referenced and idolatry. Those are both uh, commandments. You know, idolatry, of course, is actually the second commandment, but it's related to covetousness as well, which is the 10th. And he says wrath is coming because of the violation of these uh, commandments, which we see also. Then you have the sixth commandment referred to. It's anger, wrath, and malice, right? Not just anger and wrath, but also malice, right? What is malice? What's malice? Malice actually is... The intent to do harm. The desire to do harm. The thoughtful plotting uh, to hurt someone. That's malice. Did Jesus say that was equivalent to murder? Yes, he did. So it's a violation of the sixth commandment. We have uh, blasphemy was referenced in that list. So that's a violation of the third commandment. And then the ninth commandment, lying. So would you say that the New Testament church was a commandment-keeping church? Is Paul exhorting us to pay attention to the commandments here? Of course he is. But he goes on, you know, it's not enough just to put off the old man with his deeds. That's, of course, necessary. But if you put off all that stuff then you've got to put on something. And so here's what he tells us to put on. He says and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Let me ask you a question. We've we've looked at this before in Colossians, but I want you to see it here again. What is the goal of the gospel? Now, I'm asking a question, and remember, I've I've said, I think, every session, when I ask a question, I do expect you to verbally, audibly respond. So what is the goal of the gospel according to verse 10? Okay, putting on the new man. But what does that actually look like? What else does he say about it? That's right, brother. It is to restore the image of God in man. So what's another way to describe that? That's, that's good, nice, high language. Restore the image of God in man. But what, what does that look like on a practical level? How would you describe it? To be like Jesus. Is that, is that okay? That's the, that's the ultimate goal of the gospel, is for us to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus lived. What kind of a life did he live? Was Jesus all about him? Was it like, you know, it's me, myself, and I? No. It was the the opposite, right? It was, when you were with Jesus, it was all about you. Do you think we'll still feel like that in heaven? Just picture it now, sitting down in heaven with Jesus. Have you ever pictured this in your mind? What's he going to want to talk about? Himself. You know where he's going to keep directing the conversation? He's going to want to talk to you about you. That's, that touches my heart. You know, when even in heaven, when, 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 you know, Jesus is going to be the most... He's, to, he's the star of heaven, right? I mean, he's the, he's the one that everybody's going to look to and say, everyone's going to bow down, every knee will bow to him. But when he comes and talks to you, Sierra... It's going to be all about you. I'm sorry, am I mistaking? Your, your name isn't Sierra. Sorry, you look like Sierra, though, that, that I know. Sorry about that, sister. But it's still, whatever your name is, it's going to be all about you when Jesus comes and talks to you. He's going to want to know, how are you doing? He's not going to say, hey, so what would you think of that cross thing? That was pretty awesome, huh? <laughs> I don't think so. Do, do you want to make a comment, Chuck? Luke 12, it says that when we get to heaven, Christ will be serving us. So that's right. Us yes. He's not about He's right. About Jesus will serve us, Luke twelve thirty seven. He will serve us when, he, when we get to heaven. You know, that, that's powerful. That teaches me about what my attitude needs to be while I'm here on this earth. Investing in other people. That's what Jesus was all about, and that's what he will always be about. That's, about. that's what it means to have the image of God restored in us, that we are going to be about other people and investing in them. And, of course, this is, uh, carries right into the next verse, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. You know, the, the distinctions that were being made in the Hebrew church at the time of Jesus, Jesus essentially undid those distinctions and treated all people equally. If we are going to be made in his image, we're going to treat other people the same way he did. Okay. So the, the practical holiness continues in verse 12. He says, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Here's a great King James phrase for you. Bowels of mercies. Isn't that fantastic? Uh, it just means your whole insides, especially your heart, should be full of mercy and compassion. I'm from Weimar, so I can ask this question. How are your bowels this morning? Are they full of mercies? Or are you harboring ugly feelings of hatred in there? He says, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind. You know, this is what our Savior's like, by the way. This is part of what it, this is the image of Christ that is going to be restored in us. Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If and then he elaborates on that point, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. I want you to think just on a practical level right now. Think about somebody that has wronged you that you may need to forgive. Each of us has been wronged in our life, right? There's nobody here that hasn't been. If you refuse to forgive the person or the people that have wronged you, here's what you're saying. You're saying... God, I know you forgave them, but I can't. What are you saying when you say that? God, I'm more important than you are. My standard is higher than yours. My sense of justice surpasses yours. That's what we're saying when we refuse to forgive. And what God says is, My mercy and my compassion and my unselfishness surpasses yours, mortal. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you. You know, it ultimately shows our lack of appreciation for the forgiveness that Jesus has extended to us when we refuse to extend that forgiveness to others right? You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? Fantastic parable. You need to really study that through if you're dealing with a situation where you need to forgive somebody. The first servant owed, you know, millions of dollars in today's money. It was a debt that he could never repay. And the the master forgave him that debt. Right? But then he went out and uh, threw the guy, threw his fellow servant in jail for this measly little sum that he owed him. What did that say? He really didn't appreciate the fact that he was forgiven that great debt. So the Bible says here in Colossians chapter 3 verse 13, as, Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Demonstrate our appreciation for the forgiveness that Jesus has extended to us. We do it by forgiving others. Verse 14, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perf- perfectness or perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body and be what? Thankful. Gratitude. Be grateful to God for what He's done. So, this describes the life of Jesus. This is what He was like. This is how He lived. This is how we are also to live. Now, are these um, things presented as options for the Christian or are they commands? You tell me which. How many say options? Anyone? Okay. How many say commands? Yes. Okay. So does God command things without giving us the ability to perform those commands? No. In fact, every time we think about when God commanded things that didn't exist before. At the beginning, when God said, let there be light, was there any light? No, not there was no light before that. Okay, so when God said, let there be light, what happened? Light appeared. When God said, let there be a firmament, was there a firmament before that? Uh Uh-uh. But as soon as he said it, it appeared. Okay, so do you think when God says through the Apostle Paul to you and me, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, and so on. Do you have any of those things naturally? Raise your hand if you think you have a naturally humble heart. I don't see any hands going up. Of course we don't. But do you believe that if God commands this in his word, which he speaks to you and to me, is this written to you and me? Okay. Okay. So if God says this, do you believe that he can do it, that his word is able to accomplish that which it says? Can he make you and me like this? Yes. Yes, he can. And this is exactly what Paul brings up here in verse 16. Here's the key. If you want to live the life of Christ, if you want to live a holy life, if you want to live the life of resistance against evil, if you want to join the holy resistance against the devil's kingdom, then here's the key. Verse 16. Let the what? The word of Christ dwell in you partially. Is that what the text says? No, it says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly." Can you? Can we stop a minute and talk about that word, "richly"? What does that mean? You ever thought about that? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How many of you? How many of you have ever? How many of you have uh, wealthy friends, like that? They have. Everything they need. I mean, they could not spend all the money that they make, right? I know people like that. Um, I don't envy them, by the way. It's, it's a lot of responsibility. Uh, their, their lives have a, an element of stress that mine doesn't have. But uh, in any case, not, not saying it's wrong for them to have what they have. That's great. And God blesses them, and that's, that's fantastic. Uh, but in any case... Richly means abundantly, more than, than, than you could uh, really need, more than enough, okay? So when it, means, when it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, I mean, what, what, what does that imply? How do you get that? How do you get that? Ah. Brother, are you suggesting that a devotional life is how this happens? I mean, how does the word of Christ dwell in us except through our devotional life? We take it in. Let me ask you this. Is your devotional life a rich experience? Or is it a subsistence experience? You understand the difference, right? You know, subsistence is, you know, I, I read a, one page out of uh, uh, My Life Today, right? And that's a great devotional, right? That's great to supplement. But, you know, if you're reading one page out of My Life Today in 45 seconds in the morning, you know, that's, not, that's a subsistence experience. But that's not the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Richly is when you take in that passage in Scripture and you meditate on it for a time there in the morning. And then as you're going through the day, your mind goes back to that over and over again as you have moments of downtime. And you think, what does that mean? How could I apply that? How does that connect with what I studied last week? How is that impacting the decisions that I need to make for the future of my life here in the next six months or a year or even to, even that, uh, that day? How is that going to impact the relationships that are, uh, you know, that are involved in your life with your parents or your kids or your spouse? That's what it means to have the word of God, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. It's when you take in the word of God and meditate on it, chew on it, and it just fills you So that your mind is always saturated in the word of Christ. Teaching and admonishing one another. So part of letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, when you have an abundance of something in the the Bible, people that have abundance, that are good people, what do they do? What do they do, sister? They give, right? They give to others. And so that's why it says, teaching and admonishing one another. Sharing what you've studied. You know, sharing what God is showing you in your devotions. I mean, that's such a rich experience. I love it when I'm in my classroom at Weimar Institute and uh, we're, you know, going through something in the Bible and one of my students will put up their hand and say, you know, I read something in my devotions this morning and can I share it with the class because it impacts our discussion. I'm like, hallelujah time. Go for it. Teaching and admonishing one another and notice how this also plays into another thing that is really important for us in the Christian life in Psalms and what hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So here we have not only a devotional experience, but an experience of singing and music is music an important part of the Christian experience. According to Paul, Yeah, very important. Is the type of music that you bring into your Christian experience, is that very important? Yes. You cannot afford to just uh, take in anything, right, because it impacts the way you're going to live. So God-honoring music will help us to grow in our devotion to Christ. The wrong music will actually take us the other direction. Notice what Jesus said. This is all about holiness, remember. And he said, sanctify them by your truth. What, what does the next part say? Your word is truth. So the whole purpose of devotions, the whole purpose of music in the church is to take the word of God And implanted in our minds, so that it controls our thinking. That's really what. Let me break this down for you for a moment before we get into the real practical nitty gritty. Oh, we're almost. uh, Yeah, we're we're almost finished here time wise. So I am going to uh, wrap up here in just a second. But I want to just mention to you one thing. This will really underscore what I've been saying so far about verse sixteen. Here's my question to you. Eve, when she stood before the tree of knowledge, was her nature inclined to do right or to do wrong? It was inclined to do right, right? So what happened? How did the devil get her to change? He tortured her, right? He put her on the rack, stretched her, You know, no. None of that. What did he do? He just had a conversation with her. He injected his own thoughts by speaking to her into her mind. And those thoughts changed the way she thought. So, remember now, Eve was inclined to do right, and yet through taking in the devil's thoughts and allowing them to become her thoughts, she did wrong, something that was against her nature to do. So why do we have such trouble thinking that God can't, by putting his thoughts into our mind, cause us to act contrary to our fallen nature and do the right thing? Why is that so hard to figure out? It happened before, it can happen now in the opposite direction. That's why it's so important to have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. Now, I wish we had time this morning to deal with um, the very practical stuff that Paul brings up in uh, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, but we don't have time to do that. So I'm going to fast forward to the end. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Number one, does, have you joined the resistance? Does Christ rule you? And then number two, are we going to let Jesus rule the church? Okay, these are two questions we need to come to terms with as we close today. Are you going to allow God's thoughts into your mind to control your thoughts so that you're transformed into the image of Jesus? And number two, are we going to allow God's thoughts to control the church instead of saying, well, I feel like we should do this? What what do you think would happen to God's church if that's how we approach things? This is what I want, or this is what we want. (laughs) I don't think Jesus is going for that. We need to allow Jesus' mind to control the church and to control our own thoughts and hearts. Are you willing to do that today? Are you willing to join the resistance? How many of you want to stand today and say, I want to join the resistance, Lord? Or if you're already part of the resistance, you want to say, I want to continue fighting in the resistance movement against sin. Stand today if you want to do that. Well, let's pray together and ask God's blessing on us as we go out part of the resistance movement. Father, we are so grateful today for the privilege we've had of considering this third chapter of the book of Colossians. And yes, Lord, we, there was more practical stuff here we didn't get to. But Father, we pray earnestly that the real important stuff, letting your word dwell in our minds richly, abundantly, and sharing with others through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Lord, we ask that that would be a part of our experience and that our hearts and thoughts would be transformed. And Father, transform the thinking of your church at large, that we would allow you to direct our movements so that we can. Organize for the completion of this mission. Thank you for hearing our prayer. And we look forward, Jesus, to your coming as the conquering king. Help us to cooperate with you in your work as high priest in the most holy place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference. At The Cross, in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.